I know, buddy, I know. That one's my nephew, so I can make fun of him. Um, before we get started, if I could just offer a prayer request uh, for my family this week. Um, so last night while Pastor Josh was preaching, I got a text. I know we shouldn't be checking our phones, but it, it vibrated. So um, my uncle, who had a kidney transplant, what, three years ago, two years ago, um, has been having complications. He has an infection in his leg, so either today or tomorrow they're going to be amputating his leg. And um, so I'm going to offer a word of prayer for that before we begin. And, uh, you know, this goes right along with what we've been talking about this week, about fear and about joy, and that we don't find our joy in our circumstances, and we continue to move forward even when we're afraid, and it's scary. I mean, he's got a lot of health problems, and, and I don't know how the surgery's going to end up, but um, God does, amen? And um, God does not abandon us. God is with us, and they're, they're believers. They know the Lord, and, and so would you join with me in prayer as we pray not only for that, but for our time together this morning. Father, thank you for all you do in our lives. Thank you for your grace to us. And as we come this morning, uh, heavy on my heart is my family and my uncle. Uh, God, you know uh, I love him dearly, and it's hard for me to see his health deteriorating, but God, you are not taken by surprise, and you promise in your word uh, to work all things together for good. God, I pray that uh, while I, I pray that you give the doctors and nurses wisdom, whether this happens tomorrow or today, you give them wisdom and skill, uh, and I pray, God, that there be no complications, but that this would have its intended result. But, God, I pray that ultimately you draw them closer to you as a result of this, that you'd help my uh, uncle and aunt to be witnesses of your grace in their lives, that you'd conform them to the image of Christ through this process. And, God, I thank you for your goodness to us. Father, as we come together this morning to study your word, we're going to be talking about the fear of man. This is a huge problem in my life, and God, I pray that you would uh, encourage our hearts and that you'd help us to have a big view of who you are. Thank you for our time together, and above all, thank you for your son, and it's in his name, through your spirit we pray, amen. So we are looking at this theme of do not fear this week, finding hope in what scares us most, and our big idea for this series is we fear what we fear, say it with me, because we are afraid of Losing what we love. And then the uh, follow-up point we made is, say it with me, what we love and how much we love it determines what we fear and how much we fear it. So we looked at the fear of failure yesterday. Uh, today we're looking at the fear of man. Sometimes we build things up in our minds as bigger than they actually are. Would you agree? Yeah? Uh, I had the opportunity back in, I think it was, what, 2014? Uh, we went to uh, London for a trip. My sister Grace was, was it 2014? 13. Okay, same difference. Uh, we, we went to uh, uh, London. My sister Grace was studying over there for a year, and so we thought this is a perfect time to go see, so we toured London, and then we got to take, in 24 hours, we flew on like a Walmart version of an airplane. Seriously, not only was it super cheap, but it was blue and yellow, all inside, like the trays, blue and yellow, Walmart version. And we, we flew into Paris and spent one night in Paris and then took the train that goes from Paris under the, the, uh, the channel and back up into England. Uh, 24 hours in there. And that was great. But I was excited to see Notre Dame. Now, we're really sad to hear that Notre Dame uh, had the fire this year. So I'm glad I got to see it before that happened. All I'm going to say is Disney lied to me. 
Okay, so I went to Notre Dame. I've, I grew up in the golden era of Disney movies, like The Lion King came out and, and all that, and The Hunchback of Notre Dame came out. And as they zoom in on, uh, on Notre Dame, I mean, there's birds flying, the clouds are covering it. I'm thinking, this thing is massively huge. It's not that tall. Like, you get there, it's like four stories, and that's it. I'm standing there going, I had this massive thing built up in my mind, and I was so excited, and I walk up, and I'm like, I mean, it looks cool, but I feel like I was sold a false bill here, and there was no hunchback anywhere. <laughs> Not even fair. But sometimes, we build things up in our minds to be bigger than they are, and we build up this reality of things that are bigger than they are, or frankly, bigger than they should be. People can be a tremendous encouragement in our lives to do what is right. Uh, one of the things that we encourage, especially in youth groups, right, is to build godly friends into your life who can encourage you to walk in a godly way. Uh, uh, there's a good sense in which the influence of people in my life can promote me in doing good things. I ought to have people in my life that uh, have some sort of pressure on me to continue to walk in a godly fashion. That's what Hebrews chapter 10 talks about, verses 24 through 25. Uh, but uh, uh, we are to encourage one another. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Uh, and then it says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And then I, I love it. It's, it's almost as Paul is going, as is the habit of some. And then it says, uh, uh, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We should have people in our lives that pressure us into godly behavior. Amen? But while that's true, fearing what people think and can do can also stop us from being what God, who God made us to be and doing what God made us to do. Because if we have the right people in our lives they promote us towards godliness, and they push us towards godliness. But the wrong people can be a hindrance in our life when I care more about what they think and can do than I think about what God thinks and what God can do. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. You see, we, we have this idea, we're not saved by good works, amen? Amen. But we are saved for good works. You're not saved by works, you're saved for works. By grace, for works. But when people are telling me one thing and God tells me another, if I care more about what people think of me than what God thinks of me, I will also choose to please people rather than God. I will never obey God when it isn't popular, when it could hurt, or when I could lose the respect, appreciation, and admiration of people. But while we can be tempted to think what's the big deal when we live our lives by the fear of man, we will never value who we are in Christ as long as I value what you think of me more. And I will constantly find my value in what people think of me. And I will constantly find my purpose in what people think of me. And I will constantly find uh, my direction for life in what people think of me. And that will lead me in a very, very different direction than what God thinks of me, who God made me to be, and what God has called me to do. So because I obsess over what people think of me, because of this fear of man, I obsess over relationships and over choices, fearing that I will lose those things if people don't like me. I violate my conscience at work because I don't want to lose my job. I go along with my ungodly spouse's desires so that I don't make waves. 
I indulge the desires of bratty kids so that they will keep liking me. I think, well, you know, I don't, I don't want my kids to not like me, so I'm never going to tell them no. I'm never going to say, yeah, you know, you need to come to church. I, I don't understand parents who don't bring their kids to church. That makes no sense to me. Uh, one, one of the things you have to understand about my background, so I was an atheist when I was going, I, I just had no belief in God when I was a teenager. I, I was raised in a Christian home, but I don't ever remember saying, and I'm not going to church anymore. Like, that still wasn't an option. Now, either I was just really dumb and didn't think of it, or my parents just, that was not an option. You're going to go because this is what God commands of us. And because of that influence in my life, when I did get saved, boom, I grew like a weed because I had all this gospel truth in me. So yeah, your kids might not believe yet. There's no reason to not bring them. Bring them so that God's spirit through God's word can impact them. I just, I don't get it, but that's a sermon for a different time. Or I refuse to use my talents and gifts to please God and enjoy life because I'm afraid I will fail and be mocked. Now, we call it, in our secular world, codependency. The Bible calls it the fear of man. It's when I drive my identity from what you think of me and can do rather than what God says is true about me and what God has called me to do. Now, we see the same idea in Proverbs chapter 29, verse uh, 25, where it says, The fear of man brings a snare. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. The fear of man brings a snare. It traps us. And we see that played out in the book of Exodus. If you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. And we're going to look at uh, chapter 3 and 4 sporadically as we go. But Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. uh, Moses was raised in the house of Pharaoh. And uh, uh, contrary to the movie The Prince of Egypt... Uh, Moses uh, did not have a moment where he realized. I mean, it seems very clear that he knew that he was a Hebrew going through this, this phase, and yet he was raised in the house of Pharaoh. And yet, as he sees one of the Egyptian uh, overseers uh, abusing one of the Hebrew slaves, he can't take it anymore, and he acts, and he kills the man and buries him. And the next day, somebody, uh, the, the two Jews are arguing, and he says, what are you guys doing? And they said, what, are you going to kill us too? And he panics, and he realizes my sin has been found out, so he flees into the wilderness. And there he meets uh, the Midianites, and, and they're there uh, 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 shepherding, and he learns how to be a shepherd, and he's there. And he's in his uh, 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 80s at this time, where he's coming, and God comes to him in the burning bush. By the way, that means if you are older in life, uh, almost everything we know about the biblical patriarchs happens after they're 60. There isn't a retirement plan in the Christian life in this life. Retirement is heaven. Until you die, you're to serve the Lord. Amen? But Moses comes, and we see this account, chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Now, just a minor point. How long do you have to stare at a bush before you realize it's not being consumed? I mean, you think about this. I mean, you, you stare at a fire. It takes a while for the log to burn up. Moses must have been staring at it and staring at it going, ah, something's off about this. Like, this should, be, this should be burned up by now. And he says, so Moses said, I must turn aside now. And see this marvelous sight. Why the bush is not burned up. 
When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, because God talks in a lower register. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of the taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. So he gets this divine commissioning from God. I'm sending you to be my instrument through which the people of Israel will be spared and saved from this slavery. They've been in slavery for over 400 years. Uh, Israel came to Egypt as a result of what of the, which of the biblical patriarchs? His name starts with a J and ends with Joseph. <laughs> Joseph, man, you guys are sharp this morning, okay? And they come, they're there, they grow up, they don't go back to the promised land. And the book of Exodus starts off and it says, but a new king arose that did not know these people. And so now they're seeing these Israelites, they're, they're multiplying like bunnies, and they're going, they are going to be way too numerous for us. We have to suppress them, so they start, they put them in slavery, then they start adding the rule about the firstborn, or the, the, the male children shall be killed, and they're in this oppression, and God says, I've seen the suffering of my people, and Moses, I'm sending you. How does Moses respond in verse 11? It says, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? He's going, why me? Who am I? I mean, uh, why would you pick me to do this? Now, we're going to talk about this later, but the answer seems obvious to us. I mean, most you grew up in Pharaoh's house. Like, who better to go than you? But then, what do we see in chapter 4, verse 1? It says, then Moses said, what if they will not listen to me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Now, that seems like a legit question. If somebody comes to you and says, God told me you need to do this, your first reaction is not going to be, oh, okay, that sounds like a plan. You know, no, he didn't. God didn't appear to you and talk. It's the same thing back there. I mean, we see God appearing so often throughout the, the biblical text that in this world it seems normal to us, but you have to understand, to them it wasn't any more normal than it was to us. God appeared to you. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, I'm just going to back up, right? Um, you think of when uh, the angel came and told Mary, you're going to have a baby even though uh, you're not married. And she comes to Joseph and says, hey, guess what? Look, that would be the same as if somebody came to you and said that. We have to put ourselves in their mindset and going, yeah, that doesn't make sense that God would appear to them in that same way. So that seems like a legit question. Then we see in verse 10, he goes on and says, Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. 
Again, you know, that seems like a legit point. I, God, you want me to go talk to Pharaoh, but I'm not, I'm not good at speaking. I, I, I can't do this. But yet, what we find is lots of little, yeah, I can understand why he'd say that, but they add up. It's not that one excuse was a bad excuse, but it's just as soon as God answers, there's another one, and there's another one, and there's another one. When I talk with non-Christians as I'm sharing my faith with them, when I find that as soon as I answer one objection, they have another one, and another one, and another one, I know we're not really dealing with these objections. We're dealing with a person who is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. That's exactly what Moses is doing. We find in verse 14, then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. And he said, is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. While these are all reasonable objections, the verse show, this verse shows us that the issue is not that Moses wasn't just trying to cross his T's and dot his I's. Rather, he had a bigger view of Pharaoh than God, and he was looking for an excuse to justify not doing what God had called him to do. He was afraid of Pharaoh and what Pharaoh could do, and yes, we do that too. Rather than move forward with our calling, we use excuses to justify so we don't have to face up to our fear of man. God, you know, I, I'm not the right person. I don't, have the right, I, I don't have the finances to do this. I don't have the talent to do this. I don't have the knowledge to do this. You know, God, there's, there's got to be somebody else who can talk to that person. There's got to be somebody else who can stand up to that person. There's got to be another person who can do what you're calling me to do. I, I can't do it. It's not me. But what is this? When we refuse to do what God says because we're afraid of what, God, what other people think, want, or will do, we reveal what we really love. I love the praise and acceptance of people more than I love God. But what is that? Whenever I love people more than I love God, idolatry is the root of the fear of man. I have a greater view and a greater love for what they think of me or preserving my own life than I do of what God has called me to do. That's idolatry. That's putting something in the place of God. And I think God has a few things to say about idols, right? In James, he calls us, you adulterers and adulteresses, because we have traded love of the world for love of God. Or, I'm sorry, love of God for love of the world. Idolatry is the root of the fear of man, because the fear of man values man more than God. You can understand why at times people are right there in your face with immediate consequences, but what does God's word say? Well, we already looked at it. Proverbs 29, 25 through 26. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Notice, first of all, the opposites here. It's either the fear of man or trusting in the Lord. There's really no wiggle room there. Either I value man most or I value God most. Either I fear man most, or I fear God most. And whenever I refuse to do what God is calling me to do, because of X, Y, or Z will happen because of this person, I'm valuing this person more than I'm valuing God. I'm valuing what this person will do to me in my life, or my reputation, or my acceptance, more than I'm valuing what God has said and called me to do. But notice what it says. The fear of man brings a snare but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man comes from the Lord. This idea of a snare, why is the fear of man a snare? Like, he could just say the fear of man is bad. Like, don't do that. But he says the fear of man brings a snare. What is a snare? It's the idea of a trap. What's the trap of the fear of man? The trap of the fear of man is this. If you are pursuing acceptance from people, 
you are pursuing a target you will never actually hit. And here's why. Because people constantly change. You think, I want the approval of this person, but what approves you for this person at this moment will be different tomorrow. And it will be different the next day. If you're trying to get approval from people, it's a target you'll never actually be able to hit because people change. Standards change. What people want from you will change from day to day. And so that very thing that you're living for, you'll never actually get when you live for the fear of man. Yet, what does the Bible tell us? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What God says is true about you yesterday is going to be true tomorrow. And it's going to be true in a thousand years. Because God is a target that never moves. God is a presence that is always there. God is a standard that never lowers. But God is a father whose love never changes. God is a target that never moves. And we always know where we stand with him. It's not the same with the fear of man. You're chasing after the wind, as Solomon would say. All is vanity when you live for the fear of man. So what does God call Moses to do in this? How do, we, how, do, how do we approach the question of the fear of man in a way that helps us see God and see man in a way that helps us move forward with what God is calling us to do? And the first thing we see as we're looking through with Moses is, number one, we need to see God for who he is. We need to see God for who he is. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. We read, then Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Again, that's a legit question. God has told me, Pharaoh, for you to let the people go. Which God? I mean, the Egyptians worshipped hundreds of gods. The Nile was a god. The sun was a god. Everything was a god. Pharaoh himself was a god. So when he says, God, I, I don't know what to tell him. Who should I say sent me? And God says, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now that doesn't seem particularly helpful to me. That's like a fortune cookie statement, right? I am who I am. I am has sent you. What does that even mean? If, if I'm Moses, I'm, I'd be going, that, that, I don't understand what you're saying. So Either God is making a grammatical mistake here, or he's making a point. The idea of Yahweh that we often call him, or in Latin would be what? Jehovah. Comes from the, the Hebrew verb uh, hayah, meaning to be. God is using the verb to be as his name. Why? Because God is the one who is. God is the one who always was. God is the one who is, and God is the one who always will be. His name signifies to his eternality, to his uh, 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 being the root cause of all things that exist. When we say Yahweh or Jehovah, we're, we're, uh, we're giving that, um, that, or that, that uh, affirmation to the eternality and divine nature of God himself. He says, I am who has sent you, the one who is who always was, who is, and who always will be, has sent you. God's name means the one who is. In contrast to people, God is, was, and always will be. Uh, one of my favorite texts is Romans eleven thirty three 33 through 36. 
in this text, Paul has been talking about God's relationship to Israel. How uh, it seems like Israel blew it so bad that God has put them aside. And he's going, Paul's going, no, 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 no. God has allowed this rebellion for a time so that you Gentiles, and who are Gentiles? Everyone who's not a Jew, okay? Uh, if it wasn't for their rebellion, you Gentiles would not have this gospel offer. So he's going, no, no, uh, they have not been set aside permanently. God's going to renew his dealings with Israel someday, and it's going to be glorious. He says, and all Israel will be saved, and this is a wonderful thing. And then he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For, and he quotes the Old Testament, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. But that would mean that my, this thing in my life is from God. Yeah. For from him and through him and to him are all things. But what about are all things? But you forgot are all things. God is the source, the means, and the purpose of all things. That's a big statement about God. That is a big, high view of God. And Paul praises him for that. Oh, the depths. Whenever you see O oh in Scripture, that's a statement of exclamation. He's not just going, um, you know, God is wise and knowledgeable. Period. <laughs> this is an exclamation mark. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Uh, Pastor Josh has been doing a great job of walking us through Philippians. And, of course, we understand Paul's in prison. He's suffering for the sake of the gospel. Why is he there? Why isn't he overwhelmed with the fear of man? It's because he writes stuff like this about God. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. We use words like all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-present to describe God. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. When I fear God, when I have a, a, an appreciation for who God is, when I see God for who He is, that puts man in his proper perspective. God loves me, but God is also the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present uh, God who spoke atoms into existence. In the Chronicles of Narnia, I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fan. The Chronicles of Narnia, an allegory by Lewis, the author has two girls, Susan and Lucy. And they're getting ready to meet Aslan, who represents Christ. And the talking beaver, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, are telling them about who this Aslan is. And they're, they're just, they, they cannot fathom a talking lion, much less a lion who is as great as they're describing Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver. And make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
God is this all-powerful, all-knowing creator of heaven and earth. No, he's not safe, but he's good. And that's what God is in our lives. No matter what happens in the world or to us, God is. No matter what man can do to me, God is. No matter what man has against me, God is for me. He is for us. He sees what we don't see. Nothing passes into our lives that didn't first come before his throne. God's not up in heaven going, ah, great, I didn't see that one coming. God's not up in heaven going, what am I going to do now? Conference call. God's not doing that. God says, I'm bringing this into your life for a reason, for my purpose. God's plan isn't interrupted by what people threaten or what people think. God's plan for you is sure, and so you can face changing people because you serve an unchanging God. So we need to see God for who he is, but number two, we need to see people for who they are. See people for who they are. Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 through 22 But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you, God says, to go, except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. God's going, look, I'm sending you to Pharaoh, and I'm just telling you what's going to happen. He's going to say no. Moses is like, then why are you sending me? And God's going, I know he's going to say no, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to smite them, and the world will see my glory. And he says, not only will Pharaoh not let you go, and not only will I deal with Pharaoh, but the very people that are your Egyptian neighbors are going to give you their stuff as you go. These people that you're so afraid of are going to be shoving you out the door by the time I'm done. And they're going, yes, take it all, just leave us alone. While these people were a huge deal to Moses, they were nothing to God. The very people that were oppressing them were in the hands of the God who is about to free them. Yes, Pharaoh wouldn't listen. But God is not a divine chess player or a divine GPS that is simply trying to outmaneuver people. It drives me nuts when people say, God is like your GPS system. Recalculating, recalculating. God is not a divine GPS that's just, you know, going, well, well, you did this, and now i got to do this, and oh, great, no. Uh, All right, left turn. Oh, this will get him here. God's not doing that. God's not trying to outmaneuver us or figure us out. He is the sovereign Lord who ordains the ends from the beginnings. Romans chapter 9, verses 15 through 18, Paul writes about this text. When he says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. The same God that was calling Moses to confront Pharaoh was also sovereign over Pharaoh himself. That's a hard truth to walk through. That is a hard truth to walk through. But that is exactly what Scripture teaches. We don't believe what we want to believe. We believe what the Bible tells us. Amen? 
There's a few less amens on that than I thought, but that's okay. I know, it's, it's a hard truth to walk through. But we believe what God has revealed about himself. One of the worst things we can do is say, well, I, I would never believe in a God who would. No, our task is to believe what God has said about himself. What do we see in Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent comes to Eve? It says, has God really said? So he first makes her doubt God's word. Then he says, God's, you're not going to die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, uh, you will become like him, knowing good and evil. So first he makes her doubt God's word. Then he makes her doubt God's goodness. Uh, God's holding out on you. He lied to you. And he's holding out on you. That's why it's so important to base our view of who God is off of what God has said in his word, not what we think God should be like. The fact is, yes, people can hurt us. People can say things that hurt. They can do things that hurt. They can bring harm. But so what? So what? Paul was in prison. People did things to him. Like, if you're thinking, uh, you know, this, this, this health and wealth gospel presentation, if you believe Jesus, you're going to live in great abundance, and you're never going to even stub your toe again. It's all meant for uh, your happiness and your temporary benefit. Man, you're going to be really disappointed in your Christian walk. I mean, that health and wealth gospel didn't work out so great for Paul. But Paul said, so what? For me to live as... Gain, or for me to uh, die is uh, uh, gain and to live is Christ. He goes, so what if I'm hurt? I care more about God than these people. And what these people can do to me. God is still God even when we lose our job for doing what's right. When we lose a friend for doing what's right. When we lose an opportunity for doing what's right. Or even lose our own lives for doing what's right. So often we live for what dying people demand of us and ignore the eternal one. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 26-28, Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. His whole point is, have a bigger view of God than you have of people, because people are in control of God. Are, are under the control of God. God is bringing these things into our lives in order to use us. And yes, it may mean suffering. And if I, my goal in life is to avoid suffering, I'm never going to have a bigger view of God than I do of people. And I'm always going to do what people say, not what God says. Until I say, Jesus is king and I am not, I will never overcome the fear of man. Until I realize that people are putty in the hands of the clay maker, I will never have a bigger view of God than I do of people. Until I realize that I myself am simply an instrument of God to be used by him, I'll never have a bigger view of God than I do of people. One of the most gifted theologians and speakers in church history was John Chrysostom. The name comes from a Greek word meaning golden-tongued. John was sent from Antioch to what was then Constantinople, where he preached fearlessly in the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. His uh, denunciation of the lavish extravagance of the rich and ruling class and his condemnation of excess infuriated many, including the empress, who arranged for him to be exiled. When he was told of his fate, Chrysostom responded, 
What can I fear? Will it be death? But you know that Christ is my life, and that I shall gain by death. Will it be exile? But the earth in all its fullness is the Lord's. Will it be the loss of wealth? But we brought nothing into the world and can carry nothing out. Thus all the terrors of the world are contemptible in my eyes, and I smile at all its good things. Poverty I do not fear, riches I do not sigh for, death I do not shrink from. Why? Because he had a bigger view of who God was and what he wanted to do, and he had a smaller view of people. Because his commitment was to what God was doing. We need to see people for who they are. And then number three, see yourself for who you are. See God for who he is. See people for who they are. And number three, see yourself for who you are. Chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past. For since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue, the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Moses was inadequate for the task ahead. Now, I mentioned, if anybody in our mind would be great for going to talk to Pharaoh, it would be who? It would be Moses. I mean, this is a man who was raised in the house of Pharaoh. And I think you can make a good case, not only from history, but also from Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, so to speak, that Moses was not the younger brother of Ramses who was going to become the king. Moses was in line to be Pharaoh. And I think you can make a great historical case for that. Because when Hebrews says that he turned his back on the riches of, Pharaoh, of Egypt, this is not simply because he's the prince who's going to have an easy life. He was actually in line to be Pharaoh. And he turned his back on it. Instead, choosing to identify with the people of God. But he knew, the, I mean, he knew these people. He said, yeah, it makes sense that you would go and be the one. Why does that make sense to us? Well, because he had a relationship with them. They knew who he was. He had spent time. He knew their culture. He knew uh, uh, the people. He knew all these things. He would be great. And yet, as you go through the entire account, of Moses talking to Pharaoh, not once did any of his skills come up. God didn't say, go because you have a relationship with them. Go because of X, Y, or Z. He said, go because I told you to go. The things that we think make somebody a somebody, God didn't use at all. He just told Moses, go and say what I told you to say. We tend to think that God needs people who are especially gifted or uh, uh, have, have certain uh, skills and talents and relationships in order to be maneuvered. And sometimes God uses that for his glory. God isn't hampered by your lack of skills, okay? God isn't hampered by your lack of talent in a particular area. God doesn't call you to be great at things. He calls you to be obedient to things. Moses was inadequate for the task. God didn't need Moses' skills. God wasn't going to use his abilities, his connections, or his ideas. God didn't need those things. He didn't need his skills. He would use his faithfulness. Moses' value, worth, identity, and purpose didn't come from his abilities or his background, but from his creator. Who made man's mouth 
or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God made us for his purposes, and until I find my joy and my identity in him, I'm going to constantly look at other things to find out who am I and why do I matter. St. Augustine once wrote, You have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. I was made to enjoy my relationship with God. We understand in the, in the Westminster Confessions, it says, what is the chief end of man? To, in, or to glorify God, and we, we understand that, but then the second half is what? And to enjoy him forever. It's not simply this um, begrudging, okay, I just got to give God glory, I've got to give God glory, and I get nothing. No, I get God. <laughs> By pointing to God, I get God. I get a relationship with him. God knew Moses. He knew him, what abilities he had, and what he didn't have because God had given him those abilities in the first place. God knew Moses' destiny. He had a plan for his life, and he was going to fulfill that plan in his life. But notice what Moses was to God. He wasn't a stranger. God was not against Moses in sending him to go talk to Pharaoh. God's not like, well, I don't care what happens to you. You'll be the sacrificial lamb, and you, know, you go, and whatever happens, happens. God was for Moses in the midst of sending him to Pharaoh. Like This was God's plan not only to free Israel, but it was God's plan for Moses. God was acting in love for Moses by sending him to Pharaoh. We see the same idea again in Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? How do I know God is for me? Life sure doesn't feel like God is for me right now. This thing that I have to do, and I have to stand up to this person in my life, sure doesn't feel like God is for me. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? How do I know God is for me? Because he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for me. Andy Stanley has said, when somebody is willing to die for you, you don't need to question where you stand with them. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He goes on to say, but in the, all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did, did he miss anything in that list? <laughs> it's pretty well all covered. God loves me, and when he calls me, to deal with my fear of man. It's not because he's trying to hurt me. He's trying to grow me and use me. And he means good for me, even if it results in physical harm or the loss of the things I love. God will allow me to face the fear of man to get rid of the idols in my heart. He will allow me to be humiliated so that I find my identity not in my abilities, but in him. He will allow me to suffer so that I find my worth not in my uh, stuff that I have, but in the God who is the giver of all things. If I find my identity in what others think and my fear of what others can do, 
I will never have joy or peace because they didn't make me and I wasn't created for them. God made you and knows you in the midst of your struggle, but he's not just aware of you. He has your good in mind. We already looked at Romans chapter 8, 28 through 29, and we know that God causes everything except the thing you're going through to work together for good to those who love God. No, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. But what is that good? It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, so that he would have the preeminence in all things. Don't miss this. Your personalized struggles are not setbacks, but setups for what God wants to do in and through you. Your personalized struggles are not setbacks, but setups for what God wants to do in and through you. But until you trust him and have a greater respect for who God is and what he wants to do in and through you, you will never be able to conquer your fear of man because you're living in a way that you weren't created to live. It's like trying to drive a boat down Interstate 35 acting like it's a car and then getting mad at the boat going, why isn't this working? This is a horrible thing. I hate boats. <laughs> it's not what it was made for. No wonder you're not enjoying yourself. It's not made to do that. But when I live for the fear of man, no wonder I don't have joy. I wasn't made for man. I was made for Christ. And I will never find my joy in things I wasn't made to have joy in. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. These are some of my favorite verses as well. See, I'm, I'm like Cody with every song, every verse in the Bible is like one of my favorites. I say that every Sunday too when we get done preaching. Or when I get up to preach, I'm like, thank you for that song. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> Don't I? <laughs> yeah. uh, I love this text because these are the last words the Apostle Paul ever wrote. He was beheaded for his faith within days, weeks, or maybe a couple months after this was written. This is it. This is his letter to his son in the faith, Timothy. Paul's in prison at this point. And he says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Why? So that I'll get out of here. I'm going to bust out of here in the morning. No. So that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the, the lion's mouth. Okay, so he means he's going to get out of prison, right? Well, sort of. And he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely. Now, if we just stop there, we think that's a promise that God is going to get him out of any trouble here. And he's going to be able to go back to his family. He's going to be able to go back to his nice job of, of making tents. He's going to be able to go back to these things. How does Paul say the Lord will rescue him and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom? To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He said, whether by life or by death, or whether by getting out of prison or by death, the Lord will rescue me. He had a greater view of who God was and what God wanted to do in his life than he did of who people are and what they wanted from him to do. So here's my question as we close today. What could God do in your life if the fear of man wasn't holding you back? What could God do in your life? What could God do in your family? What could God do in your church if you cared more about who God is than about who people were? We had to walk through this as a church several years ago in response to some of the societal pressures that are coming on in regards to issues like same-sex marriage. For those who are not aware of some of the legal issues that come with it, man, you guys who are pastors know, man, there, there's some things coming that are going to make it really hard for us to do ministry as a result. 
and we're tempted to just pull back and go, you know what, nope, nope, nope. Um, we're just going to do as little as we can to ever offend anyone. Well, who are you trying to please? We're trying to please God. But we could be sued, so we're sued. They could take our buildings, so we'll meet in houses. But they could send us to prison, so we'll start a prison ministry. <laughs> right? Who's the boss? Who matters? God does. That's hard. But until you have a greater appreciation for who God is, the fear of man will always dominate your life. But when you see God for who he is, and you see people for who they are, and you see yourself for who God made you to be, man's not so tough. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together.